Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Central Ohio, but coming to you over EWTN Radio. And I have a great privilege to have in the studio today a good friend who's also someone who's probably very familiar to most of you, though I'm thinking 10 years ago he had no idea he'd be familiar to anybody other than his customers, right, in your uh, in your business. But I'm joined today by Steve Ray. Uh, he's been a f- very familiar guest on EWTN, Journey Home. Welcome, yep. Steve. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. <laughs> I always enjoy your shows, and I always enjoy working with you, Marcus. Well, it's, it is a pleasure, and it was good to be able to catch you in between trips. <laughs> I think you spend more time out of the country than you are in. Most of the time in jet lag than normal. <laughs> Uh, for those of you that don't know, Steve is a convert to the Catholic Church and the author of three best-selling Ignatius Press books. Crossing the Tiber was his uh, first book that uh, described his journey into the church. Upon this rock is a defense of papal uh, authority uh, and from Scripture and the early church fathers. We're going to look a little bit at that today. And his third book, um, is a scripture commentary entitled St. John's Gospel, which is a, a very fine commentary on the Gospel of John. Uh, he's in great demand as a speaker for conferences and parishes around the world and as a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live, Avamir Radio, Relevant Radio, EWTN, and many other radio TV programs. He's a writer, producer, host of the 10-part video DVD. It's 10 already. We've got seven, but the three are still we're working on. Wow. In the okay. end, we're going to have 10 in a slipped cover altogether. Oh, that's that's great. Uh, they're entitled The Footprints of God, The Story of Salvation from Abraham to Augustine, filmed entirely on location in the Holy Land and surrounding countries. And uh, they're available f- uh, from your website too, yep. right? CatholicConvert.com. We have them for sale there. Okay. And it helps our family when people buy them from us. There you go. Right. <laughs> Steve and his wife, Janet, uh, are certified guides to the Holy Land and lead pilgrimages throughout the Israel and other biblical lands. His website, as you mentioned, Steve, is Catholic. Is it Catholic-convert? Doesn't matter. Both ways work. Okay, CatholicConvert.com. Lives in Michigan with his, in that state up there, in uh, Michigan with his wife, Janet, and he's got four children. And you got ten grandchildren already. By Christmas, we'll have ten grandchildren. Wow. Yeah, my, my first is uh, August. Congratulations. So we're, we're it is fun. All right. Now, uh, there's so much we could talk about. It's just great to have you here. Uh, you'd mentioned you'd how many trips to the Holy Land? Oh, I, we've been there over 100 times. <laughs> Do they see you coming? Well, <laughs> <laughs> with your uh, hat, I'd I My passport has so many stickers on it that security, <laughs> they just look at us and said, You've been here before, and they kind of just wave us through. Yeah. Well, that's great because. Uh, I've been to the Holy Land once, and it was a good experience. But I'm sure you have a more comfortable feel to the place yourself. Uh, you know, know where you're going and what, you, yep. what where not to go. And I run now, so every day I run in Israel. So I've run from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and back into from uh, to Bethany and back, and uh, from Nazareth to Cana and back. So I, I've now explored it not only in a bus and in a car, but I've explored every part of Israel now in my running it's shoes. It's probably good with the situation as it is over there to be a good run. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, people, that's the number one question I have is, is, is it safe to go to Israel? And I, I have to say that it is a wonderfully safe and beautiful experience that we've never had a problem. People come back laughing at themselves for being concerned. <laughs> it's really a very safe place to go. Well, that's good to hear. You're being paid by their uh, their ministry of uh, advertising. I right? wish. <laughs> All right. Now, I mentioned that your second book was Upon This Rock. Uh, What scripture have you chosen for us to look at today and why? Well, I'd like to talk about Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And this one is a very significant passage in the New Testament. It's one that we usually turn to when we want to talk about Peter and the primacy of Rome and why we have a pope and how do we understand the papacy, what's their job, what's the pope's job. Usually people will turn to Matthew chapter 16 because here Jesus says it in a very pithy little nutshell. Mm-hmm. He gives us a foundational verse and understanding of what his thinking is. So it's kind of from his head, his mouth to our ears, what he's thinking about his kingdom and how it's going to be conducted on earth. So this is a favorite passage. Of All right. Mine. Well, let me read the passage, Steve. And, uh, and when I'm done, I want you to tell us how you understood it 
as a Baptist. Let's begin there. Let me read the passage first for our audience that may not have a Bible in front of them. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. As a good Baptist, how did you understand those passages? Well, I could not have understood them the way I do now, because I was raised to believe the Catholic Church was wrong. Therefore, if the Catholic Church stood strong on something like this, I would have opposed it flat out because Catholics were wrong, and so we you, were right. You were your tradition set you clear against right. it. I always say that I I was born with a pair of Baptist glasses on, and that was the lens sure. through which I saw everything. I didn't have Bible alone because I knew the Baptist tradition before I could ever read the Bible on my own. <laughs> and therefore, when I began to read the Bible, I read it through the lens that I'd already been given by my good parents thinking through a Baptist way of thinking. You thought you were Bible alone. I thought I was, but I didn't realize that no one comes to the Bible objectively. No one comes as a blank, a blank slate. We all come with preconceived ideas, theologies, traditions. You came with a Presbyterian tradition. I came with a Baptist tradition. So therefore, when I read the Bible, it had to fit through that mold. It yeah. had to fit through that prism. Yeah, okay. So I would have said that when you when it comes to the point of you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, the words Peter and rock are obviously different. And the classic way of dealing with this passage to undermine or to eliminate the Catholic implications is to say that Peter and rock were two different things. That the rock was not Peter himself, but it was his confession of faith. That was the rock upon which a church is built. What is a church built on? On the confession that Jesus Christ is Son of God and Lord, the Messiah. The church is built on the rock of that statement, that creed, so to speak. Or you could say that it was built upon his confession, that we have to confess. And when we confess these things, then we are also members of the church. Which I would say was the reason why when I preached on this passage as a Presbyterian, I did just exactly what you did, and that is you chose from verse 13 to 20, verse uh, 17 and 18 are in the middle of that, but in the context of his confession. Right. So that would be the context in which I would have interpreted it also, right. Steve, that this exactly. was his confession. Now, we, we kind of forget the next verse about giving keys and those kind of things. Right. You know, I, I don't right? remember no. because those two are together. dealing with that. No. verse very well. No. Those two are together, and the, the two are profound statements. You are rocking on this rock, I'll build my church, and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Those two things, together, either one of them alone would be profound. Put the two together, and it's squared. Yeah, he will give you the keys of the kingdom. Is The key is that you have a personal relationship with Jesus right, Christ. Right. <laughs> and what is the keys? The keys are the gospel, right? If I go yeah. to a Catholic and I give them the gospel, they need to accept Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. Stop trying to get to heaven by your works. Stop praying to Mary. Stop following traditions and start finding the Bible. And if I preach this gospel to a Catholic and I get them to leave the Catholic Church and accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, I just use the keys to get them into heaven. Yeah. This is how an American thinks, not how a Jew thinks. Yeah, but I mean, this is exactly what, right. at least I can say I would have done, or maybe you would have yeah. done, and that is we would have an explanation for the word key. It's kind of like over in, in John 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and I in you, and if you don't produce fruit, you're not abiding in me, you could cast away it. Well, what's fruit? Well, as an evangelical, I said fruit are new believers. I have to produce fruit. So there's the vine, the branches, the, the the sap of the gospel flows into me and it's got to flow into someone else. So producing new fruit is new believers. So that put that spin on it because yep, of my background. Exactly. Exactly like yep. can be done here by reinterpreting exactly. keys. If you think about it from an American perspective, we have democracies. We don't have a kingdom. This is being written in a time where they knew kingdoms, kings and hierarchies, kingdoms. 
and uh, I don't want to get into it maybe now, but th- th- there's a totally different context Jesus is using as the context I wanted it to be in. It, my context was totally different. For example, Jesus does not say, I'm giving all y'all the keys. Now, I'm from Michigan. We don't say y'all that way. <laughs> but I know in the South it's very good because you know whether you're speaking of one you or two people or a bunch of people. You, y'all, or all y'all. And Jesus did not say, I'm giving all y'all the keys. He said, I'm giving you, Peter, the keys. And that means exclusive dominion. So, But we'll touch on that more, I think, later. Yeah, and if possessively, it'd be Yun's. <laughs> if it was a bunch of people's keys, it'd be Yun's keys. That's right. right. Yeah, I that, like that, it. That's I like right. it. it. It helps you understand the Greek it behind really it. It does. It was more in line with the, with the Latin and the Greek behind. All right. Now, I mean, as I look at this first, Steve, it's almost like I don't want to jump into the Catholic because I do think it is interesting to see depending on what tradition you come from, how you can make this fit. Well, let's come at it from a Jewish perspective, because that's the context that it's spoken in. It's all coming from a Jewish context. So if you just excuse me for a moment, I'll take off my Catholic or Baptist or whatever glasses are. I'm going to put on my Jewish glasses. And we go to Israel. This is where I take my groups to the site every time because it is so crucial for us. And by the way, let's say, state something else that may be not obvious but should be. We do not have a papacy today because this passage is in the Bible. This passage in the Bible did not establish the papacy. We would have had the papacy in the church even if this verse wasn't there because that's the way Christ built his church. We're glad that this is here because it helps us understand it, but it's not necessary to there being a pope. Jesus organically built his church the way he did it. This is just a nice verse to have. It explains it. Well, Jesus, in that sense, the uh, the authority of, of Peter was established long before these words are written exactly. down. Matthew, we believe, was written first in Hebrew or Aramaic right. and then later translated into Greek, and that's what we have. So we have the Greek version yep. of the later, but it, it was several decades before the memory of this incident exactly. was put down on paper. It was and passed already, on orally. And already Peter was being recognized as the head of the church. Right. Primacy of Rome was already being established before this was ever written down. Exactly. All right. All right. So we, let's go to Israel. Let's forget that we're Americans, that we are living in a democracy, that we speak English. We're now in Israel. We're Jews. We speak Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek these languages of that culture, and 2,000 years ago, and there's no such thing as a democracy we're living under hierarchies, the emperor of Rome. Before him, it was King David and his dynasty. So we see Jesus going up to Caesarea Philippi. I don't think he went up there by chance. I don't think it's by accident that he went there. You know, when people say to me, Steve, how do you study the Bible? And this is what we're doing. We're getting deep in Scripture here. How do you study the Bible? I always say it's really basically simple. You read a passage of Scripture, and you ask as many stupid questions as you could come up with. Make a list of the st- <laughs> stupid questions. Right? So the first one you say is, why does it say here that he's going to Caesarea Philippi? Why not Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Nazareth? Why is it just Caesarea Philippi? And second of all, what is special about Caesarea Philippi that might give this passage more significance? In other words, what's the context? So now we're driving the bus up north by the Lebanese border, and we're pulling a driveway into an Israeli national park, and there in front of you is a huge rock, and in front of, on the left side of the rock is a huge cave. And so we're now in the context geographically and in the land of Israel, and we go back in our minds 2,000 years ago when there's kingdoms and so on. And now we read this passage and ask what it is means. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And the disciples say, you know what? There's, nobody knows. There's rumors everywhere about who you are. There's, everybody is speculating you might be John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or some of the other. We don't know, but there's messianic fever in the air. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, thank you very much for defining me. Now I'm going to return the favor and I'm going to define you. He returns the favor. Peter has just defined who Jesus is. We still use that definition today. Jesus returns the favor and says, good, now I'm going to define you. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, we're saying this in English. Remember, we said we couldn't do that. We had to think in terms of Hebrew and Aramaic. But this says Peter and rock. The two don't correlate in our English. We don't see a word player correspondence to that. So what, do we say? But in the Greek 
in which Matthew was written that we have copies of. It was Greek, and it says, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. So it's not Peter and Rock, it's Petros and Petra. Well, said I the Baptist. Steve the Baptist said, aha, see, that proves they're different. You Catholics are wrong, because Jesus said this Petros, and I will build my church on the Petra. Obviously two different things. Well, I did a little more study. In fact, I remember, Marcus, that I wrote a report on this as a Baptist to prove that the Catholics were wrong about this. <laughs> I actually wrote a, a, a document on this to prove they were wrong. What I didn't realize at the time was that in Greek, there is feminine and masculine nouns. It's like Spanish. You know, you take a word that either has a masculine ending or a feminine ending. Or like Latin or French. Exactly. Right, right. Same type of thing. So here, the word Petra is the word for rock, and it's a feminine now, Jesus couldn't say, you are Petra, and on this Petra I will build my church, because that's like saying, you are Petra, the girl's name, this big burly fisherman, and you call him Petra? <laughs> that's like calling me Stephanie. My name is Stephen, not Stephanie. That's the feminine. So Matthew, I think what he does is he creates a new word, puts it in the mouth of Jesus in a sense. We'll say why I say it that way in a second. But he creates a new word, which takes Petra, which is the feminine, and he gives it a masculine ending, Petros, so it can be the name of a man. It's still the same word, Petra. But there was no such word as Petros, by the way. This is the first time, because it's a feminine, now be given a masculine ending, so it can be given to a man for a name. But Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek here. This is what people forget. He was speaking in Aramaic, which was the common vernacular language of the Jews. And what he would have said is, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. We can get that from back in John one forty two, where Simon first meets Jesus, and he said, Jesus said, oh, you will be Kepha, the rock. So we know right from the beginning, yeah. is the first time he meets Simon, he says, you're going to be Kepha the rock in Aramaic. You're yeah. Kepha the rock. So now we find Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. You are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. Now, I know a man in Bethlehem who speaks Aramaic, and I asked him to read this passage of Scripture to me in Aramaic, and I recorded it. And I don't know Aramaic, but I could clearly distinguish Kepha, Kepha twice when he went through this passage. You are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. In the original Aramaic, Jesus spoke these words. The rock that he's referring to is the rock of Peter. Peter is now given the name rock, and the church is going to be built on him. Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. In the the Jewish context that you're talking about, was there significance to Caesarea Philippi in that rock, in that cave? Oh, boy, is there ever. I wish I could paint a picture for you, but I will with my words the best I can. When you come up the road and around the corner, it's the foothills of Mount Hermon. And when you approach it, there's a Tell them the significance of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain, and it represents, in a sense, the power of God, the the strength of God. And then the foothills would represent his power, and it's flowing down into the land of Israel, if we could see it that way. Also, this is the the headwaters of the Jordan River. Where does the Jordan River come from? Well, you look how much snow is on the Hermon Mountains in the winter, and you'll know whether you'll have a good year of crops and whether the Sea of Galilee will be full this year or not because that is where the headwaters of the Jordan River. And out from under this rock that I'm going to describe, water is gushing out, and it is the there are three sources of water that goes into the Jordan River. This is the largest one. Hmm. Out of this rock comes the water that has sustained the people of God from the beginning. So you have this rock, and it's about 500 feet long, probably 50 feet tall. It's massive. And on the left-hand side, there is a cave. And at the time of Christ, there was no bottom to the cave. Josephus, who was a writer of the first century, said, many people have taken a stone and tied it to a string and lowered it down, down, down. We could never find the bottom. So the pagans referred to it as the entrance to the netherworld, to Hades. Or if you want to put it this way, the gates of hell. You would come and throw, the pagans would come and they would throw their living sacrifice into that cave, throw it down into the water to the gods below. They would bring sacrifices, living sacrifices, and offer them to the gods by throwing them down into the water. And if the water came out behind you in the stream and there was blood in it, it meant the gods had rejected your offering. Hmm. If there was no blood, it meant the God, the gods down below had accepted it. Oh. Interestingly enough that Jesus is talking about the gates of hell and what's standing right in front of him in Caesarea Philippi but the gates of hell where 
the pagans believed that the gods lived down. It's the center of the mm-hmm. earth. In front of that, we'll go back a step further. In front of that cave was a white marble temple. Maybe you could call it a false church. <laughs> and in that white marble temple was statues of Caesar Augustus. It was built to the divine Caesar Augustus. He was called Lord. In fact, that was the glue that held the Roman Empire together. You had to declare Caesar as divine. Declare him as Lord and burn incense to the genius of the emperor. You would get a certificate of being a Roman in good standing. (laughs) So here you would go through this temple, which was built by Herod the King, Herod the Great, imported marble from Greece. And the pagans would go through the temple, throw the living sacrifice into the water. And there's a false sacrifice to a false Lord from a false church built on a false rock. (laughs) What's Jesus doing in this very location? This is why geography of the Bible. This is why you say, why does it say Caesarea Philippi? Go to Caesarea Philippi. Come with me on a trip. I'll show you Caesarea Philippi. There's a reason he went there. Because it, in picture form, it's the backdrop, describes everything he's telling them. Was that uh, religion that was there and that movement there having an influence on the people of his time? It was having a huge influence because not only was it a place where you came to recognize the divinity of the Caesar, but just to the right of that temple are niches carved in that rock, arched top like a dome with a flat bottom and in the rock set right in there with Greek inscriptions written you can still read were pagan altars and deities. Hmm. And they would come in front of them, have platforms, and they would dance and have unholy masses, what I would call them, in front of these pagan idols. The number one idol that was there to be worshipped was the god Pan. In fact, even today, that city is called Banyas, the city of Pan. But Arabs don't have the P, P-P-P-P-P sound. So when they tried to say Panyas, the city of Pan, the god Pan, they said Banyas. That's why on a map today of Israel, it says Banyas. Before the time of Christ, it was called Panias, the city or house of Pan, because the Greeks and the pagans came there also to worship the Pan, who was the goat on the back end and the man on the front, and he would chase the girls through the woods. It's where we get the word panic and pandemonium. And Pan was the god worshipped here. The city was even named after him, the house of Pan. And if you think about what Jesus is doing here, he is establishing Peter as the shepherd. Now, when you ask yourself, go to any book on dictionary on the on the pagan religions or on Greek mythology. What is Pan the god of? He is the god of sheep and shepherds. So not only are we getting rid of this pagan rock with a pagan church and a pagan sacrifice to the wrong Lord, but we're no longer coming here. No longer is this Pan the god of false god of sheep and shepherds, but I am the true shepherd mm. and I'm giving the keys of the kingdom to my vice regent shepherd. All of this is right there in front of your eyes. It makes it so clear. If our kids understood these things and they saw these things with their eyes and they understood the depth of all this, they would never leave the Catholic Church when they get older. <laughs> the, the question that he poses, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Um, it was interesting he didn't say, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that the Son of Man is? It's almost he's asking the question there, as if he's not referring to himself. Mm -hmm. He's talking in general about the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. Well, are we talking about Daniel? Is that the the context in which he's... I think it is. When you're speaking in in a Jewish context, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, he says, Behold, I looked in the clouds. This is the ascension of Jesus after his crucifixion and resurrection. Daniel says, In the night visions, I looked into the clouds, and I saw one like the Son of Man appearing. What I'm wondering is, um, and I wish I I can't remember my own studies, uh, exegetical studies on this passage right now, but... The Jewish certainly were looking forward to a son of man. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that many of them were being drawn to this spot because this false religion was giving them a new idea of who the son of man might be? I don't think the Jews would have because this was an entirely Gentile pagan site. Okay, so there was not having an influence on the Jews. Not on the, the Jews. Okay, great. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. I'm Marcus Grody, your host, with Steve Ray. You're hearing us on EWTN, and we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. Please stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment.
Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for Wings, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your Wings today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Joined today by Steve Ray, and we're looking at Matthew sixteen thirteen through 20. And, uh, you know, Steve, there is so much that we could go into in this. It's such a great, not just the passage, but the context, the historical context, the geographical mm-hmm. context. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 15 and 16, where he says to the group, now he's not, he's drawing the attention to himself, who do you say that I am? Of course, that carries all kinds of levels of stuff, the great I am. I mean, it's always, who do you say that I am? But Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is going to tell him in verse 17 that you know, it, was, it was God the Father speaking through you. But verse 17, er, 16 really brings out a lot about Simon. Well, he blurts it out. He blurts something out. The other 11 usually were not quite willing to do that. Peter's the one that jumped out of the boat and tried to walk on water and he fell in. Peter's the one who he's I think a type A alpha male kind of a guy. He's a leader. He's a born leader. And we learn the church has always taught us, the fathers of the church that grace builds on nature. Yeah, We take what God has already given us naturally and then he builds grace on that to enhance it. And so we have here a man who's already very aggressive and, and very willing to step out and be a leader. And he's the one that Puts his life out on the line and says, "This is you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." He says it. He doesn't hold back. And you know, when we try and mesh the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into one chronological story, it's not always easy. Right. And particularly, it's not easy to take John six and mesh it into Matthew exactly. But it's likely it happened before this, probably. Yeah. And you wrote the book on John six. On, on the Gospel of John, but in that, the whole chapter of John 6, one of the themes of it is a winnowing down of all the people from, right, the yep. crowd to yep. the leaders to the disciples to the 12. From 15,000 down to 12. And then down to one, right? Because Jesus says, what about you guys? Yep. And Peter says, and Peter says, Peter says where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? I think at that point he says, Lord, I have no idea what you're talking about eating flesh and blood, but we trust you. We've learned to trust you. We know you're the Son of God, like he says here. Therefore, even though we don't understand everything, we're not leaving. You're the one that has the words of eternal life. And if we stay with you long enough, we know you'll explain it to us. So in all those events, we see this this um, quality that Peter has been yep. given. Yep. Every individual person is as unique as their fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Every one of us. And every one of us is a combination of genetics, 
our biological, our environment, how we're brought up. Mm-hmm. We're also that character that God has mm-hmm. given us each uniquely. And then if we've been uh, given the spirit of God, there's that other aspect of our character, mm-hmm. right? All right. And so, but that part of us, that character that God has given us from the beginning of time, really, when you think about it, can either be used for good or for bad. It can. And and Jesus is going to take what we have, and if we give ourselves to him, he will build on that. So we're not all alpha males like Peter who's going to blurt this out. But John was a young man, I think maybe 15 at this time, quiet, more contemplative. He laid his head on Jesus' breast. Jesus took what's natural to him, more of a quiet, contemplative personality, and he built off of that to be the great theologian and philosopher. Whatever we have, whatever gifts and talents that we have naturally, God can take and build on that, and grace can enhance that. In all those different situations that we've mentioned, we do see this particular quality of Peter. John 21. It is, exactly. Remember? They're in a boat. Yep. John says, that's Jesus. And he jumps in the water. Peter jumps in the water. (laughs) The others row the boat in. Right. And Peter, they all bring the fish in, but Peter by himself drags it up to the shore and puts it at Jesus' feet. Peter himself does that. I think that Jesus loved Peter the best. I'm going to step out on a limb and say that, because even though John is referred to as the one whom the Lord loved, I think that as a young man, contemplative young man, I think Jesus loved that about John, knowing that he was going to live the longest. He says that at the end of the Gospel of John, even if he doesn't die, what's that to you? You know, he's... But I think he loved Peter because of Peter's boldness, because of his strength, because of his willingness to step out on the limb. We will not let them crucify, even if he fails to live up to it. He loved the attitude Peter had. He loved that spontaneity that I will do what's right. I may not be able to live up to it, Lord, all the time, but I'm going to proclaim it right now. I will do it. And I think the Lord loves that kind of an attitude. Well, Jesus loved Peter, John, the leper, the woman caught in adultery, and the Pharisees. He just loved them each a little differently. Exactly right. I mean, really, based on their needs and their character, the hardness of their heart. So he loved John in a little different way than Peter. And a lot of it's based on the character they have. But as I heard recently when someone asked uh, a TV show, I happened to be watching, you know, are you... Are you disappointed in me? And the person says, I'm disappointed for you, not in you. Mm. So when Peter looks, when Jesus looks at Peter and sees what he can be and then sees how he so quickly fail, he's disappointed for Peter, but he loves him. He sure does. But he's shown this quality. And again, in this context, most of the guys, they're not putting their selves on the line. But Peter does. They didn't step out of the boat either, but Peter did. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is is Simon merely speaking in technical categorical terms of the Jewish expectation of the Messiah? I, I think he is. I think he knows what he's saying there. And I, I think he probably, after he said it, surprised himself that he said it you know how many times sometimes i i say things and i say wow i can't believe i said that but you're the christ you are the mishiach the messiah the anointed one that we've been waiting for you are the son of the living god and you had just made a point earlier about who do the the men say the son of man is so you have there the son of man and now the son of god you've got both man and god here and he's saying not only you're the son of man but in being that that's a title for the messiah you are actually also the son of god And the Catholic Church has never said that the rock is exclusively just Peter the man. It is also his confession. It is also his faith. The catechism of the Catholic Church, interestingly enough, doesn't say it's either or. It's both and. It is not just Peter or his confession. It is the confessing Peter. It is Peter and what he says that becomes a rock. The Catholic Church has no problem. Protestants always tend to like it. You know this because you've heard it on your show a thousand times. It's either or. He's either the rock or something else. He's, he can't be both. He can't be the confession, Peter and the confession. The Catholic Church says, why not? Jesus is both God and man. There are things that seem opposites, but they can 
be well, together. We've, you and I both from our background, we see Christians divided over either God is sovereign or man has free yes. will. Tradition or scripture, Mary yeah. or Jesus, yeah. tradition, yeah. works or faith. It's not either or, it's both and. It's works and faith. Mystery, it, it ends up in a bit of a mystery. We have to leave. Right. Jesus was fully God, fully man. Yep. Wait a second. How is that possible? That's right. You know, isn't it 50-50? No, it's not 50-50. No. You know, it is fully God, fully man. Exactly right. He's both and. There's a mystery there. And this rock is both Peter and his confession and the office that Jesus is establishing. All of that's the rock. But let's just... Get rid of one argument first, because it always comes up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that Jesus is the foundation. No other foundation can be laid other than Jesus Christ for the church to be built on. Why then Paul can say that it's that, and Catholics say Peter is the rock the church is built on. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Let's give Paul the benefit of the doubt and say that Catholics misunderstand Matthew. No, that's not the way you do it. There's two different stories being told. In Matthew, there's a foundation being laid. It's not Jesus because Jesus is the builder. You can't be the builder and the foundation. In the other 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that Jesus is the foundation and Paul is the builder. Paul says, I am the builder. I am building it with stones. So you have two different metaphors. And when I was in first years of school, you don't mix the metaphors. And when Protestants try to use one to negate the other, they just prove they're not handling the word of God fairly. Because we also read in Ephesians, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It doesn't say they're Jesus. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is using another metaphor. Mm -hmm. They're different metaphors. We have to read each in its context. In this metaphor, Jesus is the builder. And what's he building on? The foundation that he's just laid, which is Peter and the rock. So let's and, get, that, and that's a good context to see the the both and of the man mm-hmm. and his character, and he's going to be a, a flawed man, but he's going to be a humble man, right. you know, in the end, willing to be right. and asking to be yep. crucified upside right. down. And that's why he also, when when Jesus said, "Do you love me?" He would not use the word agape. Jesus said, do you agape me, meaning that word for love, which means are you willing to die for me, have a, con- a commitment to me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. I'm your friend. Why wouldn't he say I, I have this godlike commitment for you? Because he'd already claimed that and failed. Yeah. Peter had learned humility. He had learned to be humble, and no longer is he going to overstate himself anymore. Yeah, because he begins at, you know me. That's right, you know me. You know me. You, you, <laughs> you know, know that I've... That I, it can't. I don't. I'm not able to love you that deeply on my own. Right. I already denied you. Yeah. I said I would love you, and I denied you. Right. So don't don't make me use the word agape. And then Jesus, at the end of that passage, though, says, "You are right, Peter, because in the end, someone else will dress you and spread your arms apart." And he is referring to the way he would die. That G- Peter would ultimately have that agape love in the end when he died as crucified for his Lord. When we take another break, when we come back, uh, we need to jump into this keys issue. Good. Keys are fun. We've got to make sure we understand how you understood that as a Baptist. Were those the keys just to the church down the street, or what did they refer to? All right, we'll, we'll look at that when we get back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. joined today by Steve Ray, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Steve Ray is our guest today. And I do want to remind you that this radio program is connected to a website. If you go to chnetwork.org, 
chnetwork.org. You'll get connected to the Coming Home Network International. You'll see all the stuff that we do in the Coming Home Network International. There's a lot of stuff on the uh, forum and lots of conversion stories and, and lots of great stuff. Coming Home Network exists to our primarily goal was helping Protestant ministers on their journey back to the church, but really, really are committed to helping all come home to this beautiful church. I'm very, very proud of what you've done. And I was just saying to you during the break, I just think that you're doing excellent work helping Catholics understand Scripture and get into it and dealing with conversions. I just think what you're doing is is absolutely remarkable. Well, whenever I do this program, I'm actually hoping that there's a couple of non-Catholics out there listening who maybe for the first time are recognizing the flaws of Sola Scriptura and are recognizing the beauty of history and how Scripture was interpreted by the early church fathers, seeing the full context as you're bringing it out, Steve, in this passage. I mean, it's uh, we, we don't have to come up with some a knee-jerk answer to read away from what the Bible was talking about in this particular mm-hmm. passage or how this was taken right. by the early church fathers. In fact, given that, I really want us to jump head-on into verse 19, in which after he's you know, appointed to Simon, established and redefined him as the rock upon which he will build his church, Jesus says. Right. It's not the rock upon which... 30,000 denominations of churches will will be built. It's his church, and that the powers of death shall not prevail against it. We could talk about specifically on that, but that's one of the reasons why we believe the church has lasted all this Mm -hmm. time, because it's been protected and guided by the Spirit. But verse 19, he then says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's given Peter a title of rock. He's already established an office, and along with the office come the keys. This, If you look at this from American eyes, like we started out the, the discussion earlier, with American eyes, you don't understand the implication. What Always, Scripture has to be studied in context, not only in the context of Matthew, but in the context of the New Testament, the whole Bible, but then in its cultural yeah. and geographical context. So when you do that, you say keys of the kingdom. Where do you find this word? Go to any Bible software program and do a search for keys of the kingdom, and you're going to come to Isaiah chapter 22. (laughs) And this is fascinating stuff because Jesus is not speaking these words in a vacuum. He's speaking those words based on their cultural literacy. What do kings of Israel do? Kings of Israel do what kings of Israel do. So what do you what you want to know what kings of Israel do? Go back in the Old Testament and study the kings of Israel. What do they do? They establish offices. Just like the president of the United States has cabinet members, the king had cabinet members as well. Offices. One of them was called the Queen Mother, uh, which that's a topic we could do another day. <laughs> but their numbered one man under the king was called the royal steward, or the man over the house, major domo, vizier, prime minister, whatever you want to call him. The king did not carry the keys around. They belonged to the king. He did not carry them. He delegated them to his royal steward, who was to take care of the kingdom. In Isaiah 22, there was a steward named Shebna who was not doing his job right, so he was replaced by Eliakim, and it says you will take over the office. You will be given authority. You will carry the keys of the kingdom of David, and what you open, no man will shut, and what you shut, no man will open. Now, everybody that hears that, it should ring in their head, ding, 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 guess what? This is the very illusion Jesus is making. What you bind on earth, bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven, the keys of the kingdom, whatever you open, no man will shut, whatever you shut, no man will open. And so Jesus is referring back to this institution of Davidic kingdom of them carrying keys. Jesus as stewards. a king in the dynasty of David. That's right. He's handing did, over the, his authority through the keys that represent him right. to his assistant. And what did the angel say to the little 15-year-old girl in a cave in Nazareth? Your son will sit on the throne of his father, David. And then Daniel says that when Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he do? He went up into the clouds and was introduced to the ancient of days and given a kingdom which had no end. Now that he's there, notice that does not Jesus says, I am giving you the keys. It's a promise that I will give you the keys. When will I give you the keys? When I'm seated on my throne and I'm the king. When the king sits on his throne, he points his royal steward. At that point, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and begins to preach with the keys. Why? Because Jesus is now the king. He's seated on his throne. Peter is now the prime minister. The keys represent exclusive dominion. 
The man who was in charge of the kingdom, he had the keys, singular, not y'all, all y'all. The royal steward had them, singular. Jesus said, singular to Peter, I'll give you the keys. Peter has exclusive dominion. I use the example. Can I right now, Marcus, go out in the parking lot, get in your car, drive to your house, and take over your house and move in? I cannot do that because you own them and your keys represent your ownership of those Mm -hmm. things. However, if you say to me, Steve, I'm going on a vacation. Here's the keys to my car and my house. Will you drive to my house, move in for a month and take care of the dog and keep up things? for Now I can go to your house and I can move in because I've been delegated the authority. Jesus, Peter cannot just take over the church. Jesus is the king. He owns the keys. They're the keys of his kingdom. But he says to Peter, I'm going away to prepare a place. And while I'm gone, I'm going to give you the keys. Would you please get in my car and drive your car to my house? And would you take care of my house? In other words, he's given Peter the exclusive dominion to be in charge of the kingdom of God in his absence. And there's a great painting, Marcus. Everybody's seen it, but I don't think they've noticed this aspect of it. I love it. And I always show it to our groups when we take them to Rome in the Sistine Chapel and the judgment scene. Peter always is clutching the keys. Always, he gave me these keys. I'm going to do my job until the end of time. But in this judgment scene, he's given the keys away. And I thought to myself the first time, I said, what in the world? This is different than I've ever... He's at the end of time. He's back in the presence of the king. He's now in heaven, and he's given the keys. He's saying, basically, you delegated these keys to me. I've done well with these keys. I did my best. Now I'm giving them back to you, the rightful owner, the king. And this is in the judgment scene in the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo understood this passage. But in his absence, when Jesus is there preparing a place, he has given Peter the exclusive control and his successors to be ruling the kingdom of God, to be enforcing the unity, to be teaching doctrine, to be excommunicating those who are not willing to obey and enforcing what Jesus wants in his church. This is the context of this passage. And understood this way, people say, of course there has to be a pope. Of course there has to be a vice regent of the kingdom. You know, when you look at the history of Israel, there's a long-standing tradition of those who were in charge needed others to share their leadership. Mm. It looked back at at Moses, right? And exactly. uh, you know there's there's the he's overdoing himself and his father-in-law says you've got to have some help here. That's right. You're going to run yourself in the ground. There's always been this. And so we see that that rather than Jesus now believing that every individual that believes God's calling them to ministry, therefore has the authority of the keys, which is what we see rampant in America, at least, yes. if not all over the world. Just any individual man who's inspired by reading the Bible and then one day wakes up and, and, a, and the light comes through a window and makes a cross on the wall, and he says, that's a sign from God. He's called me to, to be a pastor, and I'm going to go out and start my church and uh, you know, the absurdity of that, but it's all over the place. It is. And you got to go back and Jesus said, I will build my church. Who, who is this guy that sees the cross on the wall to decide he's going to build his church? Jesus already is building his church. How arrogant of me to think I'm going to go out and do better than him and start my own church. Jesus, yeah. th- this is, I will build my church. Well, and you can assume that there was a little bit of that already happening in the early church. There were some references to false teachers, right, in Galatians and a couple other places. We see it in in uh, uh, John in Third John, mm. where there was a leader that was really setting himself up. A number of places, but the one that that to me affirms what Paul was saying: this is the key to understanding leadership, is when he says, um, "I'm getting down into chapter ten." who says, how can men call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And now do they hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? Sent. sent. The authority. And that is coming down from Jesus to Peter, and then Peter and the others in Matthew 18, and then them... And in Second Timothy two two says, "Go out and appoint others who can appoint others who can appoint others." Right. And and Jesus said to them, 
you, I give you the power to forgive sins. Those who sins you forgive will be forgiven. Those who sins you retain will be retained. He didn't say that to me, and he didn't say that to you. <laughs> he said that to his new priests, his new apostles. Yeah, talk about this. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those words go right in one ear, boom, right out the other for most people. You know, they've yeah. heard it so many times. But you got to stop and say, okay, now in the context of the Bible and of Jewish history, what do those words mean? They mean... Even according to the Jews, those words bind and loose were some of the most common words used in the Jewish legal system in the time of Christ. They had back in those days liberals and conservatives too. What one rabbi would bind or restrict, the other rabbi would loose. He would release you of that obligation. And even Protestants, in my book Upon This Rock, I have a whole host of the Protestant commentators. I use Protestants whenever I can to make a point <laughs> that this binding and loosing was a means of exercising judicial and legislative authority in the Jewish Sanhedrin, in the Jewish community. So in other words, the Jewish leaders had the authority, and this is what that includes, to exclude someone from the kingdom, the community, meaning excommunication, or to receive them in. It meant that they had the right to legislate rules and to adjudicate them to be a court as well. It meant that they had the authority to declare clean or forgiven. Now, Jesus said to the Jews, basically, you have failed to do this. The chair of Moses, you have failed to live up to this. You have failed in these things. So now the 12 tribes are now the 12 apostles. The chair of Moses is now the chair of Peter. And he establishes this new Israel. And the new Israel has the authority to bind and loose, just like the old rabbis and teachers did. Peter and the other apostles are given the authority to bind and loose, meaning they have now the authority to make rules in the church and to judge them, to exclude people from the community and to receive them in and to declare sins forgiven. And it is an awesome responsibility when you think in the context. I mean, you're making, as a leader in the church, you're making very difficult decisions. And instead of them spending all their time sitting around, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Jesus is essentially saying, I'm going to give you the Spirit that's going to guide you into truth, and you're going to have authority to act on it. Mm-hmm. And you will act in with honor, desiring to follow me. This idea of what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Yes, it's like as if a judge makes a ruling here, it's ratified by God in heaven, which is why I believe in infallibility of the Pope, because Jesus could never give that kind of authority to Peter with a big mouth if he didn't fully intend to superintend Peter's mouth. He takes care of what Peter says and the popes because he made a promise to us. He makes sure that the popes don't let him down or us down. And we've seen that charism carried out throughout the last 2,000 years and goes on today with our wonderful Holy Father that we have in Benedict. Steve, thanks a lot. You're welcome. I love being a Catholic. And Marcus, I love the Bible more now as a Catholic than I ever did as an evangelical. Because we received it within the church that gave it to us in the first place. So what's your website again for the audience? CatholicConvert.com. All right. Thanks a lot. Go to Steve's site. You'll find out more about what he's doing in his books. Pleasure for you to join us, Steve. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work, Marcus. Well, Well, thank you. And thank you all for joining us for this program. Again, I hope it was an encouragement to your faith, uh, not to feel hesitant to read the scripture, but to read it prayerfully and with great conviction to follow our Lord Jesus. God bless. See you next week.